Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but I had no idea where to go for answers. So with Running Explained, I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the weekly Q&A episode of the Running Explained podcast. I am Elizabeth. I am super happy that you're here. And again, the most amazing questions. I was kind of worried when I started this whole Q&A thing that I would get some really great questions at the beginning and then eventually just get a bunch of repeats and feel like, well, I've already answered that. Let me link to it. I've already answered that. Let me link to it. But you guys are continually giving me new, fresh questions. I mean, they're, they're getting more complex, which I love, but, uh, I like, there is just always more to learn, like I said, about running. So my first question today, we're going to be talking about cortisol and adrenal health. So the specific question is thoughts on avoiding cortisol slash adrenal issues while running daily. And then this person said long durations. So this person is asking broadly, tell me if it's okay for my cortisol levels and my adrenal health if I'm running a lot. And let's back up just a little bit and talk about what cortisol is and how it relates to adrenal health function and how that fits into running. So cortisol is a hormone and hormones are the things in your body that control a lot of what goes on. So the presence or absence of hormones, the secretion or not secretion, production, not production of certain hormones is what tells your body to do certain things or to not do certain things. Cortisol is what's known as colloquially the stress hormone. And you may have heard, you know, oh, cortisol does this. Oh, if your cortisol, high cortisol can contribute to weight gain. High cortisol, if you have high cortisol, it is bad for your adrenal health, you know. The stress hormone, the burnout hormone, cortisol, bad, hmm, bad. Cortisol is not bad. Uh, there's no, there are rarely are things that are bad in and of themselves. It's that the, the dose that makes the poison, right? So the amount of cortisol, the level of cortisol and the duration for which, at which, you know, the cortisol is elevated is the problem. So let's back up a step further and talk about stress. Again, stress is not necessarily a bad thing. Actually, in many situations, stress is a positive thing. Stress is a benefit. When you are training, when you are running, you are stressing your body. And then after the stress is over, you repair and recover. So it's the stress stimulus response, right? So you introduce a stressor, your body goes, ah, oh my God. Okay. What can I learn from that? And goes through the repair and recovery process and comes out the other side stronger. And you do that over and over and over and over again. And you develop significant adaptations in dealing with that specific stress. And that's exactly how running training plans work. That's exactly how you get better at running. Every time you go for a run, you are introducing a stress specific stress to your body, which you are then teaching your body to learn from and get better at doing. Now where stress becomes a problem is again, when you have too much of it, more than your body can handle and learn from. And we talk about stress and specifically cortisol, we're usually talking about chronic levels of stress and chronic elevated 
cortisol, right? It's the long-term elevation, the long-term stress that causes issues. So what does this mean as it applies to running? Because running is an activity that causes a rise in cortisol. Running is, like you said, a stress activity that is a stressor. And part of our body, you know, response to stressors is to release cortisol. And then afterwards, the cortisol levels decrease and our body goes through the repair and recovery process. Part of what determines how stressful the activity is, is about the intensity and the duration, right? So harder, faster, more intense running is more stressful on your body than easy running is another massive benefit to why you should be running the vast majority of your miles at an easy pace because it is a more manageable stress on your body. We talk about why running too hard all the time. So if you're running all your miles at marathon pace or faster, that is bad for many reasons. One of which is that it does increase your cortisol so much that it makes you more likely to burn out, get injured, your body can't repair properly. So uh, running most of your miles at an easy pace is Again, just another, it all fits into the puzzle. I know there are a million reasons why I tell you to do a lot of your running at an easy pace, and this is just another one of them. So the level of intensity of your running also determines kind of how much stress is put in your body. And then the duration of your running, how long your workouts or your runs are, longer runs are more stressful on your body than shorter runs are. And again, that's not a bad thing. Stress is not a bad thing. There are situations where we want that long run stress, right? That's a, there's a reason the long run is part of 99% of the training plans out there is because the long run gives you special benefits, but only when you actually get the duration in. It's intentional. All we're doing all, with our training plans, with our training, with our running, we are intentionally stressing our body to get certain results. We are tinkering with our biology, physiology, biochemistry for the intention of making ourselves into better athletes. That's all it is. I mean, when you come down to it, you know, you put, you know, I want this outcome. So I'm going to put this stressor on my body and go through the, you know, weeks and months it takes to get the long-term results. So another thing that causes increased cortisol is calorie deprivation. So this is one of the reasons why I and other running coaches and sports nutritionists out there explicitly tell you, you cannot train for performance in a calorie deficit for many reasons, for many, many, many reasons, because they're incompatible goals. You cannot train to your fullest performance potential if you are in a calorie deficit. And as it specifically relates to cortisol, it's because Calorie restriction, calorie deficits increase your baseline level of cortisol. Your body views calorie restriction, calorie deficits as a stressor. And again, it's, this is a, a chronic stressor, right? This is a, if you are constantly in a, in a state of calorie deprivation, whether it's little or big, your body views that as something that is stressful and reacts accordingly and elevates your cortisol. And it's kind of like, oh crap, you know what? Like, I'm, I'm kind of stressed about this. I'm not getting what I need. I'm, I'm going to be stressed about this. And it, that's that chronic level of stress that makes you more vulnerable to other 
um, situations in which you would acutely stress your body, right? So if you have a bunch of stuff going on in your life where your, your level of cortisol, your baseline level of cortisol, your baseline stress level is elevated all the time for many, whatever reason or reasons, maybe you're not sleeping a lot and you're you're not eating enough and you are not managing your stress well, and you're anxious about a lot of things. And then you embark on a training plan or a running schedule that has you constantly exposed to those acute stressors of the stimulus of running. Yeah, that could push you over the edge. That could be a problem. Now, somebody who has a a kind of dream personal life, they're getting so much sleep and their nutrition is like perfect. It's so dialed in. They're really good at managing stress. They have very little stress in their lives. Their baseline level of cortisol is completely normal for them. They are able to handle a much higher load of training, basically because they have more bandwidth to work with when it comes to what their body can handle with cortisol, right? So you can also have, you you take yourself as an example. You can have gone through the exact same training plan, same workouts, same paces, six months apart, and had different outcomes or different reactions to the training plan because of all the other factors that are going on in your life at the times that you embarked on those training plans, right? So our running does not exist in a vacuum. We do not exist in vacuums. It would be wonderful to say, you know what? I wish (laughs) I'm just going to follow this training plan and then I'm going to get this result. It's going to be great. And it kind of ignore all the other stuff that's going on in our lives. But we cannot do that. It is impossible. Our running is intimately intertwined with everything else that's going on in our lives, whether or not we like it, like it just is what it is. So you cannot ignore the rest of your life when you are thinking about what your training is going to be like, or what your training is doing for you. You might find yourself in a situation where, Hey, the last time I did this training plan, it was totally manageable, but this time, like I am struggling. And that's because of all the other stuff, right? So ways you can kind of minimize your daily chronic cortisol stress level issues is to help manage those chronic stressors in your life, right? Make sure you're getting enough sleep. Make sure you are eating enough. If you have situations in your life that are mentally or emotionally stressful, finding ways, outlets, um, ways to help you deal with those in so it's not impacting your functioning. So whether that is therapy or whatever your outlet is, and maybe it is running, right? But keep in mind that running itself is a an activity that releases cortisol. And it's, if you are already in a really kind of tenuous, precarious state stress-wise, it could be that going for a run is good for you. It could be that going for a run is actually more than your body can handle. So the question of, is it bad for my cortisol if I run every day? Not necessarily. No, there is, there is no black and white on this. There's no kind of, oh, if you run hundred minutes, it's fine, but hundred and first minute, that's too much. Like it, it really depends on you, your body, your running history, what else is going on in your life. You may go through periods where it's not an issue if you're running more. And then depending, like I said, on on all the other stuff that is going on in your life, it could be an issue and you might need to be running less because running is just too stressful. Something I always like to say is that you can only train as hard as you can recover, 
And a lot of times that's kind of applied to why you should take rest and recovery days, right? You can't (laughs) go balls to the wall seven days a week. You need to recover. You need things like recovery runs and recovery days, and you need enough sleep and you need enough nutrition and you need enough recovery in order to support the training that you're doing. And that's just another way of saying that after you've stressed your body and your cortisol has increased, you then need to give yourself time to rebuild and repair and recover. So if you have a chronically elevated level of cortisol, or you have done something to really spike your cortisol, you are going to need more recovery than if you were dealing with lower baseline levels of stress, lower instance of cortisol. That's why it takes so much longer to recover from a marathon than a half marathon. That's why it takes longer to recover from a track workout than an easy run, right? The greater the stress, the more recovery that you need. And if you are already in a state of heightened stress because of other things that are going on in your life, you need more recovery to make up for that. I hope that makes sense, right? So if we're talking about stress and cortisol, when you have more of the stress and the cortisol, you need more recovery on the other side. And when you have a higher baseline level of stress, higher chronically elevated you know, cortisol, and you're walking around level of cortisol is higher because of all the other things that are going on in your life, you are going to need more recovery from the same activity than if your baseline cortisol, your baseline stress levels were lower. So can you run every day? It depends on if you can handle it. If you find yourself in situations where you are starting to feel symptoms of overtraining, or burnout, or chronically elevated stress, if you are having trouble sleeping, if you have a higher elevated you know, re- elevated resting heart rate, if you find yourself irritable, big swings in appetite, I'm hungry all the time, or I'm not hungry anymore, if you find yourself getting sick a lot, there, there are, are signs and symptoms. If you listen to your body, it will tell you what's going on. It's just, it's it's hard to actually listen to our body sometimes. So Running every day, not necessarily a bad thing, all depends on the context in which that you're doing it and what else is going on in your life as it relates to your cortisol levels, your stress response, your ability to recover, kind of the whole package of the whole universe in which your running exists. This next question is a version of a fairly common question that I get. And the question is the best runner distance to jump back in after finishing a half marathon after a rest day. So <laughs> take more than a rest day, please. After finishing a half marathon, you generally want to take one to two weeks or more of recovery time. For some people, that's time completely off. For other people, that is just really nice, easy, reduced mileage to let your body rest and recover. For the marathon, I mean, there are pro runners, you know, take weeks off, two to three weeks off sometimes. Again, super reduced uh, distance, all easy, super, super, super easy mileage. So recover properly, give your body time to heal from what you just put it through. And then the question is, what do I do next? It all depends on what you want to do, what you have time for, and what your long-term goals are. So if you are a newer runner and you've just finished, you know, your first training plan and you ran a half marathon, you're like, okay, cool. Like, I don't know what to do next. You would probably be best served by spending some time working on your base. So continuing to run consistently 
and building up your mileage and making running more of a habit and just building up your aerobic base, getting your legs used to running the mileage, building your base. So you can either do maintenance, which is when you kind of stick to one same kind of weekly mileage and schedule, or you can actually go into a base building training plan, which is when you actively work on increasing your mileage in a controlled way over a period of weeks. And then the question, okay, is like, well, how much is that? Well, it depends on how much you've been running. If you were following a half marathon training plan that had you peaking at around 25 miles a week, uh, I would say a good place for you to go back to is in the 15 to 20 mile per week range and then start from there. So either maintaining there or using that as a jumping off point for building up to higher mileage. So I do have some base training plans available, specifically one I just released that goes from 15 miles a week to 30 miles a week. There's a metric version too for 24 kilometers to 48 kilometers per week over a period of 16 weeks. It builds you up from a weekly mileage of 15 miles all the way up to, it's actually a little bit over 30 miles in a controlled way, in a gradual way, in a way that gets you used to running consistently gets used to the rhythm of what a training plan usually consists of and helps prepare you for future higher mileage training that you might do. More running in general is always better for your ability to be to run, right? So what to do after a half marathon, your training plan or whatever you, the training plan you just finished, take some time off. And then you have to decide, okay, what are my, you know, what do I have time for? Do I have time to invest in increasing my mileage? Maybe not. Maybe a bunch of other stuff going on right now and going to maintenance is totally fine. Maintenance is also a form of base building. It's just a lot more subtle. You can actually go into active base building mode where you are actively increasing your mileage over a period of weeks with a goal mileage in mind. And then if you really want to, or depending on your schedule, you could transition into another race specific training plan. I would caution you against jumping from training plan to training plan consistently without taking any sort of break or time off in between. You can get away with it for a little while. I'd say maybe two plans worth of training. Um, But beyond that, it is important that you take some time in between training plans to either just maintain or reduce mileage, you know, or work on base building specifically because training for races is really intense, right? And I just talked about cortisol (laughs) and chronic, you know, chronic elevated cortisol and why that's a problem. And, you know, you cannot just continuously build and 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 build. You can't, you can't, you cannot, you will break down. You will burn out. You will end up in a really nasty place. You might even burn out from running and need to take like months off. So, um, Yes, jumping right into another race training plan is an option, but I would caution against doing that too many times in a row without taking time off in between. But yes, uh, in terms of mileage, you generally don't want to go back to the highest mileage that you ran. You want to go back to a little bit reduced. So if you were, if you peaked at 25 miles, I go back to the 15 to 20 mile range. If you peaked at 30 miles a week, I go back to the mm, 20 to 25 mile range. Well, I just, I need to run as much as possible. Oh, I, I, I can run 13 miles. So, oh, guess what? That's my new long run distance. Like, no, 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 no. You may get to a place where 13 miles is a normal long run, but just because you did it once does not mean it's your new normal. Just because you ran 
75 miles in one week does not mean all of a sudden that that is your new weekly base mileage. No, talking about that stress and recovery response, like those are periods of stress. Those are reaches. Those are big stresses that you then need to back off and let your body recover from, right? That's the whole premise behind having a peak week and then a taper when you're building up to a race, right? So your peak week is your kind of most intense, highest mileage week in a, in a training plan. And then it's followed by a couple weeks of tapering, reduced mileage and intensity leading up to race day because you have the big stressor and then all of this recovery time to let your body kind of take and consolidate and say, yes, now I am strong and rested and ready for race day. You don't, you don't run your highest mileage and your most intense workouts right before your race because you need to give your body time to recover and rest and consolidate, to back off, to rebuild. And it's the same when it comes to, you know, just because you did it once doesn't mean it's your new normal. You did it. You have to recover from it with reduced intensity and duration, and then you can continue to build up from there. So all this to say what to do, it depends. Um, But hopefully, hopefully you've taken away from your half marathon training that you like to run and it's something that you want to continue to do as a part of your life. This next question is somewhat related, and it is, what are some of the best ways to build your base back up after taking some time off? It depends on how much time you've taken off. If you've taken off um, three months from running, but you've been moderately active during, and you know, in terms of losing fitness, it's not going to take you that long to kind of get back to maybe where you were. But if you've taken some serious time off or you've been sedentary or inactive due to injury or whatever other reasons, um, it's important to build your base back up correctly and not just assume like, oh, after a couple of weeks, I'll be right back where I was. In general, when you are building anything, either for the first time or back up, you want to do it slowly and in a controlled way. So the best ways to build your base, whether it is for the first time or backup, is to incorporate lots of easy running for all the reasons we've talked about today, because easy running is easier on your body. It helps your body increase distance without overly stressing it. It is uh, helps your aerobic capacity increase. It helps your bones and tendons adjust without putting too much stress on them from the higher impact forces of faster running. Uh, It makes your body more efficient at burning fat for fuel. It increases your capillary density and your mitochondrial density. So all these reasons, easy running is just unbelievable. And it really is the core or the vast majority of any base building that you want to be doing. Um, There are base building plans that are 100% easy running. And so whenever you're building up your base, the core of that should be easy running. So to build back up slowly. I know if you've been at a certain level of fitness before, uh, there can be a lot of emotions around returning to fitness and trying to achieve that level of fitness again and getting frustrated or angry and saying, well, God, you know, you used to be able to run this fast. Why does it feel so hard? Why can't I hit those paces anymore? God, I'll never be where I used to be. And don't worry. You will. You absolutely will. Once you've achieved a certain level of fitness, it is much easier to return to that level of fitness that you've already been to 
than it is to achieve it the first time. So, you know, your body has an excellent memory. You said to talk about muscle memory, you've cellular memory as well. If your body has already done something once, it will be able to do it again more easily. So if it took you, you know, however long it took you the first time to get to where you were at your peak shape, it will not take you nearly as long to get there the second time or the third time or the fourth time. And just like we talked about before, about how you can't constantly always be building, you do need to give yourself periods of downtime. This is something that pro runners go through too. Pro runners, elite runners, elite athletes are not always in competition shape. You just, it, you cannot maintain your peak fitness all the time. You just can't do it. So as you run, train through the years, you will have cycles where you are, you know, I don't want to say in less great shape, but you will have periods of downtime and recovery, and maybe you're falling out of exactly where your peak shape is, but you will get back there. It's all about the cycle, you know, doing it, the cycle of stress and recovery on a long time frame. So building back up, do it slowly. The general rule of thumb, they say it's that 10% rule, right? So again, this is a broad recommendation. This is one size fits many, not one size fits most or even all. Uh, And there are many other things to consider in your life about why you took time off, what other things are going on, if you were dealing with any other injuries or issues or whatever it is. But in general, the 10% rule means that you should never increase your weekly distance by more than 10% from week to week. So this means you shouldn't jump from 20 miles to 30 miles to 40 miles to 50 miles over the four four week period. Like that's, mm -mm, don't, don't even think about it, please. Just ignore that it's even a possibility. What you'd want to do is go from, let's say 20 miles to 22 miles, and then to like 24 miles, and then to 26 miles. And then because I'm a big fan, again, of the cyclical process of rest and recovery after something intense, you want to take what's called a down week or a cutback week. And maybe it's every two weeks, maybe it's every three weeks. The base building plans that I offer have down weeks built into them. That's why it takes so long to reach your new increased level of mileage, because you need to do it in a sustainable way, which means giving yourself time to recover. So you have two to three weeks of building up, And then you have a week of reduced mileage, two to three weeks of building up and then a week of reduced mileage. And you're constantly building. So you are increasing, you know, week over week, month over month, but you're doing it in a way that is sustainable to let your bones and your ligaments catch up to make sure you're not overstressing your body to give your body time to adjust to all the rigors that you are asking of it. And like I said, if you have already achieved a level of fitness before, it's going to be easier to return to that level of fitness again. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that you can get away with bigger increases in mileage because your bones are really what we need to be concerned about. Your bones and your tendons and your ligaments are systems in your body or structures in your body that are slower to respond to stressors. They do respond, but their process of responding repairing, rebuilding, and getting stronger is slower than, let's say, your muscles or your, you know, you're talking about your respiratory capacity, your lungs. The danger of doing anything too much too quickly, which is kind of like the number one, please don't do this in running. Please do not do too much too quickly. 
is that you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to injure yourself. You're either going to, you know, cause a stress fracture or break something or ask too much of your body in a way that causes injury. And whether it is physical injury or psychological injury, whether burnout, that sort of thing, you know, slow and steady wins the race. There is no such thing as overnight success in running. There is no one workout or one distance or one thing that is going to be the on or off switch to whether you find running success. Running is a game of patience and consistency over the long term. So if you are genuinely looking to build up for the first time or build back a base that is strong, you want to do so in a way that is slow and sustainable and creates the strongest foundation possible for you to be, then continue building on and reaching faster, farther, higher, better, whatever your goals are. Um, you know, you can't, you can't just build up as quickly as possible. It's like building a house of cards versus building a brick foundation, right? Too much too quickly is cards. Slow and sustainable is your brick foundation. And if you're building a skyscraper, which is what you should think of when you're building up yourself as a runner, you want to build the tallest skyscraper possible to reach heights, to be fast at distances that you only dreamed about before, right? And to do that, you need a really, really, really strong foundation. You can't build a skyscraper on a foundation made of playing cards. You need to build one on the strongest, sturdiest foundation possible. And that's why building up your base slowly and sustainably is so important. I get a lot of knee questions every week, um, which is not surprising considering that something like 80 to 90% of runners experience a running related injury every year. And knee injuries or knee issues are one of the most common running injuries that you can get. So you are not alone if you are experiencing knee issues, but just because something is common doesn't mean it's okay. And this question that I got uh, that I'm going to answer today of the many that I receive each week about your knees is um, how to protect and take care of your knees, especially if you're very tall. And I want to go ahead and dispel the rumor or the myth that running is bad for your knees. Running is not bad for your knees. Running improperly and not taking care of your whole body is bad for your knees and for you in general. Your knees are magic. They are amazing parts of your body. Our knees are evolutionarily a really cool thing that allow us to do a lot of things that other um, animals can't do but your knees end up taking kind of the brunt of the issues as it relates to your lower body, because they are the only thing standing in between your feet and your hips. Think about your knee. Your knee is the hinge, right? In between your hip and your ankle, upon which a lot of forces are exerted. And if everything's not in alignment and strong and stable, your knee over the course of the thousands of steps you take while you're running, can start to be kind of like the something's out of alignment and a little thing can spiral into a big thing over the course of those thousands of steps. So running in and of itself is not bad for your knees. And actually they've done studies that find that runners as they age tend to have healthier knees. They have fewer knee problems than, than the general population. So if you think that running is bad for your knees, you are wrong. What's bad for your knees is when you are not stabilizing, strengthening, and mobilizing the rest of your body. And that puts too much 
pressure weight force on your knee so that your knee becomes injured. Many runners have weak hips, have stiff or tight hips that lead to injuries in the knee because the hip strength and stability and the hip mobility is lacking and that impacts how your knee moves or is not able to move when you're running. So it's not a knee problem. It shows up in your knee. It's a hip problem. Same thing with ankles. A lot of runners can struggle with ankle mobility, right? Or foot issues. But where do those ankle problems usually show up? In your knee. So it's not necessarily that your knees are the problem. It's the other things. Now, of course, everybody is structurally and biomechanically different. There are people who are built in a way where maybe their knees are a little bit more um, um, vulnerable because of just how their bodies are put together. And that is, that is just how some of us are built. But there are many, many, many things you can do to protect your knees. And that is by addressing the rest of your body. So making sure that your running form is good. You are not overstriding. Overstriding is when your foot lands in front of your body when you run. And it usually accompanies heel striking. When you land heel first, your foot, your heel is the first thing that touches to the ground. And when your foot lands in front of your body with your heel out, that is overstriding. That puts excess force on your knees. That is not good for your knees. If you have weak hips, tight hips, most people do, especially those of us with office jobs sitting all day, weak hips, tight hips lead to knee issues, especially IT band issues. So strengthening your hips and your posterior chain in general and mobilizing your hips, making sure your hips are mobile, they're not tight, doing hip openers, yoga, foam rolling, uh, working with a massage therapist or physical therapist to work on your hips. That is a huge benefit to your knees. Making sure your calves are not overly tight. It is easy to get tight or naughty calves sometimes. Naughty calves. Naughty calves. Foam rolling your calves is really beneficial. Strengthening your calves. Eccentric heel drops are an excellent strat, um, strength exercise for your calves that can also help protect and repair Achilles tendon issues. Making sure your ankles and your feet are strong. Yes, you can do strength exercises for your feet and your ankles. There's toe yoga. If you're really into foot strength, you can do things like toe yoga. Making sure, like you said, you know, your ankles are mobile and strong. Your feet are mobile and strong. Making sure the system in which your knee operates is mobile and strong is, going, is what is going to help protect your knees from any issues that you might have as a runner. It's not to say that things don't happen, that they, they do. Um, but your best defense is a good offense and being strong and mobile in the systems that matter are going to be what helps pr protect you from injury in general. So not just knees, but just like in general, it makes you a stronger, more resilient runner, a more durable runner when your systems are strong and mobile. So if you're concerned about your knees, be concerned about the other things, your hips specifically, making sure that the rest of your body, your lower body is strong and mobile, and that should minimize any issues that you have with your knees. Our next question is about pooping. It's about runner's stomach, which is the euphemism that we use when we talk about people needing to stop to poop in the middle of a run. Runner's stomach. Um, 
affects a lot of runners. When you are running along, all of a sudden you need to find bathroom right away. So it can be really awful to deal with, especially in races, right? So what causes runner stomach? There's a couple possible causes. And again, it all kind of comes down to the person, the individual. Some people are afflicted by runner stomach like all the time. Um, some of people experience it rarely. And in general, runner stomach is some disruption or something that's going on in your digestive system that causes things to get messed up and ruin your day. So when you run, um, you of course are, are jostling your internal systems. You're jumping up and down <laughs> as far as your body is concerned over and over and over again. If you are a newer runner experiencing runner stomach, it might just be that your body is adjusting to this new activity that you've decided to take up, right? Like it might eventually kind of work itself out and go away. Uh, your body is, as we've discovered, amazingly adaptive at a lot of different things and learning how to deal with the jostling of running is one of them. Now, when you run, your body also prioritizes what systems to use and where to divert its resources, right? So when you digest things, it does require a lot of blood and energy, you know, an investment from your body about, um, okay, now we're going to digest something and it takes a lot of energy and blood and to do that. Except when you're running, you won't, you have finite resources to dedicate to whatever activity that you're doing. So when you're running, your body diverts the blood it would normally use for digestion away from your digestive tract and puts it towards, you know, your legs instead, your body that's running. Because evolutionarily, um, digestion is a rest and recovery process and it is not a priority. When you are running from something or running towards something or running away from something, you know, your body is going to say, well, yeah, I don't really need to digest anything right now. I just need to run because I'm running away from a tiger or whatever it is. So when you're running, your body takes the blood it would normally use to help aid in digestion and puts it towards other things like your legs, your muscles in your legs and that sort of thing. So this means that your digestion, your digestive tract, your digestive process slows down considerably. You do not have the ability to as easily, efficiently and effectively digest things with your you know, limited resources, digestive tract, as you would if you were sitting on the couch with nothing to do except digest food all day. Now, there are some people who seem to have stomachs made of absolute iron who can eat and drink anything before, during, and after a run and have zero issues. But the vast majority of us are absolutely not like that. If you've ever taken place or taken part in anything like a beer mile or a donut run, you know how uncomfortable it can be to run with certain foods or beverages in your body uh, and how much that sucks. So there are some general guidelines to what to avoid when it comes to pre, um, during and post run or not post run, but you know, pre run nutrition that can help guide you towards a happier digestive tract, but it all is going to come down to experimentation. And you might have specific food sensitivities that you don't know about that are causing these issues that you won't know until you eliminate them. So if you are having digestive issues in general, I'm not one to say you should cut out food groups, but I am one to say that you should figure out if something's not working for you. If it's not working for you when you run, it might not be working for you when you don't run. You just don't know it. 
because your body can kind of like paper over the cracks and it's not a huge deal when you're sedentary, when you're, you know, at rest. So, you know, there are some common, you know, uh, food allergens out there, things to avoid for most people in general, when it comes to what you should eat before you run, uh, you should avoid sugar alcohols. So sorbitol, maltitol, erythritol, xylitol, oligo, oligosaccharides, um, sugar alcohols can ferment in your gut and cause gas. So that can be very uncomfortable when you're running and cause maltitol. Uh, I think it's sorbitol or laxatives. Um, so if there's any, any food, any like a protein bar, any foods that you eat that are bulked up by or sweetened with these types of sugar alcohols or, um, fermentable fibers like chicory root oh, well, on the nutrition label, they're called a bunch of different things, but chicory root fiber is one of them. If they have, if you're eating something and it has like 40 carbs and 30 of those are fiber, that thing might not be a great pre-run snack because sugar alcohols and very, very high fiber foods, those things that ferment in your gut are not great to eat before you run in general. doesn't mean they don't have a place in your diet. It just means that maybe pre-run is not the place or time for those. Eating very high fat foods right before you run is not the best case best pre-run food for you. Same with super, super spicy foods. Um, they can cause irritation of the gut lining. And again, this is all, you know, everybody's different. You might be really accustomed to eating high fat foods or really accustomed to eating super spicy foods. That's fine. But in general, kind of the basic irritants when it comes to your gastrointestinal system are avoid those easily fermentable high fiber or sugar alcohol foods, avoid high fat foods right before you eat, uh, and avoid, very, very, very spicy foods. I don't know that you'd want to eat like a bunch of really, really spicy food and then go for a run. Um, and I love spicy food, but you know, not for a run. There are also other things like your hydration level, uh, that can affect your ability to digest food. And then we talk about hormones like cortisol, hormone fluctuations in general can affect your ability to digest certain things. So especially for women who are more prone to the effects of hormonal fluctuations throughout the month, there can be times when your digestion is more better or worse is more or less efficient is impacted or less impacted by what's going on hormonally in your body. Your digestion can also be impacted by things like pain relievers that you take. Uh, if you find yourself popping Advil or Tylenol before every run, first of all, please don't. Um, there is a time and a place for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, but all the time is probably not the time for that unless your doctor says otherwise. Far too many runners overly rely on those types of drugs. If you are in so much pain that you need to take pain leaders before you run, stop running and there's something else going on, right? But um, NSAIDs can cause irritation of the gut lining. They can cause ulcers if you take them too often at too high frequency. And then like I said, it is trial and error. Um, you may have periods in your life where your digestion is better and then your digestion is worse that you have, you know, no runner's stomach. And then you have a lot of runner's stomach. The other things that go on in your life, again, like we've talked about the whole episode, it's, it's, your running does not exist in a vacuum. There are uh, everything that goes on in your life affects what's happening in your running. So 
If you do have super high cortisol because you're going through an extremely stressful period of your life, that can influence your digestion and lead to runner's stomach. You know, when you get really stressed out or anxious or angry and like your stomach gets really upset, like, yeah, that's, that's a hormone fluctuation or, you know, like I said, it also would be related to hormones that women experience around their periods. So the general advice for what you should eat or what is recommended that you eat before you run in order to minimize runner stomach issues have to do with kind of bland, light fiber, easily digestible carbohydrates like banana or rice or plain oatmeal or toast. Um, Things that are very inoffensive to your body can be quickly digested, converted into energy that you need when you run. The simpler, the better. And again, experiment, find what works for you. Remember that your digestive process is a multi-hour process and everybody's different. Everybody's digestive tract takes a different, you know, however many hours to go from start to finish. So if you eat something the night before, it could still be in your system the next day. It's it's likely still in your system the next day, right? So it's not just about what you eat right before your run. It's about what you ate last night or maybe yesterday for lunch. So if runner stomach is seriously an issue for you, start paying attention to things you eat all the time rather than things you eat right before your run. Because if the runner's stomach issue that you're having is pooping, um, that's not because of your pre-run snack, it's because of something that you ate hours and hours before that's made it to that part of your body and is now very unhappy about it. So it's uncomfortable, I know it does suck, but with trial and error, it is possible to figure out what the cause or culprits are and minimize those in your running. This next question is about your big toe. This person asks, I've heard about the big toe in running, uh, how important it is. What's that all about? I'm glad you asked. The big toe is a big deal when it comes to running. You would have a really hard time running if you didn't have your big toe. So when you think about the core of your body, right, you have your abs that provide stability to your body Uh, The big toe does the same thing. It provides stability to your foot. You probably don't realize the impact that your big toe has on your ability to do things like walk and run. But if you were to take your big toe away, it would be really, really difficult for you to achieve the same level of stability, speed, um, fluidity in your movement if you didn't have your big toe. So it's a... It's a weird thing to think about until you think about it and you're like, oh my God, like, yeah, the big toe is actually really important. So the big toe is always the last part of your foot to leave the ground, right? So as you run through your running stride, your gait, if you think about it, okay, my foot hits the ground and then I push off and the very last thing, the last part of your foot to leave the ground is your big toe. I'm just going to quote directly from Anatomy for Runners by Jay DeCherry, who is a phenomenal physical therapist, and his books are amazing. Anatomy for Runners, and he also for Running Rewired. But he talks a lot about, of course, anatomy for runners, and this is what he has to say about your big toe. While you have lots of muscles in the foot, the big toe provides about 80 to 85% of the primary support. To provide this support, it obviously has to be on the ground. Once on the ground, the muscles that keep it stable must do their job. So 
The big toe is essential, essential to your ability to run properly, correctly with good form. And what we all want to do is run faster, right? So having good energy return in the running that we do. So he goes on to say during pronation, which as we've talked about is the natural movement that your foot makes as it hits the ground and rolls through its foot strike. During pronation, that was me, that was not him. During pronation, support from the big toe actively stabilizes the twisting of the rear foot on forefoot. During supination, the toe locks the front out to create a rigid lever for push-off. So the natural, end quote, the natural twisting motions, the natural rolling through motion that your foot makes as it goes through the normal foot strike pattern as you roll through your foot strike through your running gait. Your foot naturally supinates and pronates and, you know, goes from uh, rear foot to forefoot. And the last thing to leave the ground is your big toe. And when the last thing to leave the ground is a strong, rigid big toe, you get more energy, more bounce, more forward momentum out of that movement, right? Your big toe is actually really, really, really important. And it's not something you think about, okay, I have my entire body engaged in this running activity from my head to my feet. And I would think, well, gosh, I think my most important things must be my legs or maybe, maybe my butt, my glutes, right? All those big muscles. And sometimes it's the little things that actually make a big difference. Now you can't, it's very hard to consciously control any part of your body, much less one that is so small and kind of hard to control as your big toe. So what can you do to make sure that your big toe is strong and mobile. Well, you can do toe yoga, toe yoga, toga, toe yoga, toe yoga, or toe strengthening, foot strengthening exercises are things you can do to increase your toe and foot strength in a way that helps your overall form, your energy return, helps you push off your big toe in a way that makes it a strong lever to increase your ability to move forward your forward momentum. So one of the very kind of common ways to do toe exercises are, and you do this, you know, you do it one at a time, you can do them together. I like to do it one foot at a time. You you take your socks off, stand barefoot on the ground. You isolate your big toe and try to raise your big toe while keeping the other four toes of your foot on the ground. You just, you know, raise and lower your big toe. Do it in sets of, I don't know, 10 or 20. And it's probably harder than you think. You might think, ah, whatever, I can do that. And then you think, oh my God, the rest of my toes are coming up or my toe doesn't, I can barely get it off the ground. You just need to work on it, okay? So that's one way of strengthening your big toe. You can also do things like, um, you can, you know, scrunch up uh, dish towels, you know, work on clenching things with your toes, right? So putting a dish towel or a, a pan towel underneath your toes and using your toes to kind of pull the, you know, the dish towel towards you, like, you know, one little bit at a time. So your dish towel, you start at the one end of the dish towel and then use your toes to kind of scrunch the whole thing up, bring it towards you. That's one way of doing toe strengthening exercises. And then you can look up other ways of doing it, but yeah, your big toe is actually really important. It's probably something you don't really give a lot of thought to, but now that you know, 
you will never not know how important your big toe is. So the next time that you're kind of just zoning out or looking down at your feet going, God, my toes are so weird. Try doing some toe yoga. Try to isolate your big toe, your movement right there. Um, and of course, like it, everything else in your body, your big toe is connected. Well, everything's connected, but your big toe is directly connected, of course, to um, the muscles in your feet and your ankles and your calves. So having a stronger big toe can help with the everything up the chain, upstream as well, right? So now you know about the big importance of the big toe. The final question this week is about arm carriage. And the specific question is arm carriage. High like East Africans, low like Asians, does it matter? So this eagle-eyed runner has pointed out the arm carriage differences. So arm carriage, meaning, you know, how you hold your arms, your upper body while you run, um, to kind of the extremes of what we see when we look at arm carriage. And I assume that these are elite runners that she's watching. So your arm carriage is related to a lot of things, your biomechanical uh, setup, your, you know, just how your body is structured, but it also has to do with where your center of gravity is. So she specifically mentions East Africans versus Asian runners. And uh, speaking specifically, I think about Japanese runners who are known to be very good uh, distance runners on the international stage. East African runners tend to have legs that are very long in proportion to the rest of their bodies, right? So East African runners, if you watch them running, they tend to be all legs, <laughs> all legs with shorter torsos. And yes, they do tend to hold their arms higher. So kind of up, you know, just they hold their arms higher. Maybe their arms are bent at an angle that is uh, smaller than the 90 degree angle you usually recommend. Um, they're just the arm carriage tends to be higher as opposed to when you watch Japanese runners run. Japanese runners tend to have legs that are sh a shorter proportion overall of their body. They tend to have longer torsos and shorter legs compared to East Africans. And this is like super broad generalizations, but we're, like I said, all built differently. And when you watch a running race, it's pretty obvious that runners of East African descent and runners of Japanese descent just are proportionally a little bit different. <laughs> Japanese runners tend to hold their arms. Their arm carriage tends to be lower where their arms are more down towards their hips as opposed to being held higher. Now, assuming all else being equal, your arm carriage is also a reflection of where your center of gravity is. So if you have a shorter torso and longer legs, you have a higher center of gravity than somebody who has a longer torso and shorter legs. It's just how it works. That's where your center of gravity is. So higher center of gravity, higher arm carriage, lower center of gravity, lower arm carriage. Uh, that also being said, when we are looking at elite runners as kind of the, you know, that's our most, most of our exposure to watching other runners is watching elite runners, right? Watching professional runners or very, very good amateur runners run uh, distance races, at the Olympics or in major marathons or whatever it is. And there are many things to learn from watching elite runners run. And I just love, I mean, it's unbelievable um, watching some runner. I could just run, watch them run for hours. But it's also something to keep in mind that uh, the more talent that you generally have, the more you can get away with having bad habits. 
distance. So you may have watched a marathon and seen a runner or two and hats thought to yourself, wow, their, their gait, their stride, their form, like doesn't look good. Um, now that might just be because we have natural variations in our gait and our stride. Everybody, you can have good running form, technically correct running form, but it might look weird just because, like I said, we're all different biomechanically, structurally, uh, the more we run, the more we tend to find the form that is most efficient and best for us, barring any major form errors or form problems. But the more talent that you have, the more you can get away with having bad habits without it causing huge problems for you over the course of these long distances, right? So for many of us, the extra energy wasted on having things like the, a bad arm carriage or inefficiencies that would tank us over the course of a half or a full marathon, these really, really talented elite runners, um, it's not, it's not as important to them to get all those little things right because they have so much talent, so much ability to run at that high level. Now, of course, there's a difference between being elite and being the best in the world. And, you know, I think watching Iliad Kipchoge run is clear. He's the best in the world for a reason. I mean, his form is unbelievable. He has so few inefficiencies. But so that's also something to keep in mind when we're watching elite runners run. Not only are we seeing just natural variations in how people are built, but we are also seeing um, people run who are are special, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will never run a marathon at five minute per mile pace or below, you know, that is, they, they have special qualities that allow them to do things that, that the vast majority of us will never be able to do. So that's something to keep in mind. But talking about what makes good arm carriage, um, like with many things with running form, the basic principles are the same, even though they might be applied a little bit differently depending on the person, right? So you want your shoulders to be relaxed and squared and have a tall upper body, but not have your shoulders forced backwards, right? So no arching of the spine backwards and likewise, no hunching of the spine or shoulders forwards. If you find yourself, um, your arms are constantly crossing your midline, right? So that invisible line from our nose down to our toes across the center of our body. If your arms, if your hands are constantly crossing your midline, first of all, that's not good. That might be an indication that you have something going on with your shoulders, that you're hunching for some reason. There's another, an imbalance or some other issue going on. So shoulders relaxed and tall. You want your elbows to generally be bent around a 90 degree angle. You want your arms to be swinging in a back and forward motion, not swinging across your body, not going from side to side and fairly close to your body, right? So no chicken wings, no, no T-Rex arms either. No, no, don't clutch them to your chest. They should swing independently of your, you know, of your body. You shouldn't be clutching your hands to your chest and swinging your body from, you know, side to side as you run, like your arms should be swinging independently. Having your shoulder, sorry, your hands kind of cupped in relaxed fists, um, but not floppy, right? So we don't want floppy wrists. We want our, our hands to be in a neutral position without being clenched, but also not loose. And of course, your arm carriage is going to change depending on the pace that you're running. If you're going uphill or downhill, if you're sprinting or just going at a nice, easy jog. But the general principles of your good arm carriage will remain the same. So is one better than the other high versus arm, low arm carriage? 
no, one's not better than the other. They're different because we're different. So, uh, you know, practice the principles of good arm carriage. Make sure that your overall running form is dialed in and your form, your arms, you should naturally find an arm carriage that works for you as a runner. Et voila, there you have it. All the questions for this week's Q&A. I hope you learned something. I also got to increase my knowledge a little bit as I was researching the answers for some of these questions. And it's all fascinating how much there is to learn about running and the body and just you know, from the very top level down to the cellular level, there's always more for us to learn when we are runners. So don't forget to check out, like I mentioned, I do have training plans available if you're interested in a base building or a level one training plan. You can always find those on my website, runningexplained.co. And I am continuing to release weekly interviews with experts in the field. So stay tuned. Those come out on Tuesdays while these Q&A episodes come out on Fridays. And until next time, happy running. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find me on Instagram at runningexplained or at my website, runningexplained.co. If you have a question you'd like to have answered, you can submit it in my stories every Monday or email me at elizabeth at runningexplained.co. That's E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H at runningexplained.co. Until next time, happy running! This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.